I really feel still, and it may be even stronger today than ever, a sense of passion for really that empowering message that we need to take responsibility for the prioritization of our life and not just let everything out there, broadly speaking, define that for us. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is a proverb, less is more. Our guest today, Greg McEwen, has discovered this is especially true in business, assuming we're focusing on the right things. He's the founder and CEO of McEwen Inc., an organization that helps leading companies reach the next level of growth. He's worked with companies such as Apple, Google, Facebook, Pixar, and more, and has been featured in the New York Times, Fast Company, Politico, and Harvard Business Review. He is also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Essentialism, and a world-renowned keynote speaker. Greg, welcome. It's uh, great to have you join us on the Elevate podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you, Bob. So I always like to start at the beginning. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about what your early career or late childhood was like? What did you start out doing and how did you get started on this track? I had been on a service mission for two years and I came home really on fire with a feeling of wanting to live life as a mission, not just to have had this, uh, this particular experience. And I'd already enrolled to study law in, uh, in the UK, and I was doing that. But all the time, I felt like, really, I wanted to be teaching and writing, and particularly in the field of principles and leadership and human performance. Those, those were the things that were uh, not just a passion for me, but just a, a sense of pull towards it. But here I was committed to studying law uh, every day and into the night, and uh, I was visiting some friends in the United States in the midst of this and had a bit of a eureka. Somebody who I met with just one time said, look, if you do decide to stay in America, then you should help me with this consultation committee, whatever. I never did that, but that question and the assumption in it that you could do something different was really material moment for me because, and really I never went back into the assumptions I'd held before that question. Uh, the, the original packaging was off, uh, so to speak. And I just started thinking, well, what, what if? What, what if you didn't have to do law school? And I never did go back to law. Instead, tried to just design a life around what I felt this sense of mission for, which was teaching and writing. I, that's what I wanted to do, teach and write uh, in, the, in the field I just mentioned. And so that took me on an adventure you know, to come to the United States and to, and to interview many other people who were already proven writers and uh, speakers and teachers of various kinds. And I just had a great opportunity being taught and educated by them. So this was the first of, let's say, two big shifts career-wise that bring me to, you know, what it is I get to do now. So the first was this break with the past commitment towards doing this kind of work. And then the next one was where I shifted to what the message actually would be, what I would teach about, what I would write about. So what was the, did you have a tipping point moment on the concept of essentialism in your own life? 
Well, that was the second phase yeah, of this. When I, I, I had a feeling that was <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when I look back over this 20 years. And so the second is, so I'm already wanting to teach and write. And then I'm working with companies in Silicon Valley. And I noticed this predictable pattern that when they're focused, it leads to success, which leads to options. All of that sounds good, but it can turn out to be a significant problem if all those options just breed the undisciplined pursuit of more. If you fall into the undisciplined pursuit of more, you actually start to plateau in your progress or fail altogether. In the midst of that, I get an email from a colleague at the time says, look, Friday between one and two would be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby. I'd like you to be at this client meeting. And uh, perhaps they were joking, but that didn't really matter because I was torn. How can I keep everybody uh, you know, happy. How can I, so as we go into the hospital, stakeholder management, <laughs> yes, well, I suppose that's right, but it, it, let's do it all. And so our daughter was born in the middle of late Thursday night, early Friday morning. Everything's gone well with that, but I'm feeling anxious, trying to balance all of it, trying to do it all. And so Friday comes along. Actually, I just relived this experience because Anna, my wife is the first person I'm going to interview in uh, the Essentialism podcast uh, that I'm launching. And so she gets to give her side of this story, which is pretty interesting. I wasn't sure I wanted to. Which is different. <laughs> that, you know, that, that's, you don't know if you want it out there. Uh, but it was, it was so good to hear that. Um, I'll let people find that. But for me, the next day, I, to my shame, do go to the client meeting. And really, as I reflect on that error of judgment, of violating something clearly more important for something less important. I learned the simplest of lessons, which was this, if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. And that helped in hindsight to really frame and focus what it is I felt a sense of mission to teach and to write about. So I wrote Essentialism and, and I teach that now to you know, individuals and also to organizations. And, and I really feel still and it may be even stronger today than ever, a sense of passion for really that empowering message that we need to take responsibility for the prioritization of our life and not just let everything out there, broadly speaking, define that for us. Yeah, I have a mentor who, who's fond of saying when he does a lot, he does a lot of leadership training that uh, your schedule reflects your priorities and show me your schedule and I'll tell you your priorities. Right. And, you know, a similar idea looks, you know, show me your checkbook and I'll yeah. tell you what your priorities are. Yeah, you're right. That the, Your real prioritization is manifest by your actions. And that can be a little, I suppose, discouraging in a way because it says, well, maybe you're not so aligned as you think you are. But the other side of it, the more hopeful part of that observation is that all you have to do is make one choice in alignment with your what you believe your prioritization is, and now your life is moving in that direction. Right. It can pivot towards the essential just as quickly as it can pivot away. And I think that's so important to remember that what matters most is what happens next. So how does one determine what's essential? Is there a framework? Well, I think there is. Um, I mean, I do talk about it within essentialism, but even in the years since essentialism was written, I've come to see this more clearly. Um, so actually, let me just share that. that I, was, I was invited, this was right after I'd finished essentialism, but uh, 
that I was invited to go to this really fascinating opportunity. It was a two-week program of 50 really interesting people from all over the world had been gathered together and you know, somehow I'm invited to and I, I mean, I'm in there with this group. And the whole program is basically looking at the world's most uh, significant problems, uh, the most intractable issues, and, and really brilliant professors coming in to speak about that, great groups and dis- thought leaders to be able to try and wrestle with these. And I'm coming to this with this lens, what's essential? What's really essential? You know? And as I'm doing that, one of the world's most s- simplest ideas starts to dawn on me. And it's so simple, I'm not even confident to share it with the group because I think, well, I'm just going to sound naive. And I eventually get the courage up to, to share it. I put my hand up and I say, look, I think that what we're talking about for this two weeks is a prioritization problem that if we would focus on helping families be happy and thriving at home, if we focused on that, it would solve many of the other problems out there that we are here to discuss and to try and address and so on. And what surprised me was that the group gave a, there was like this spontaneous round of applause. And I, up until that point, thought I was alone in that idea, certainly one of the few people that might think it. And I found that almost everybody believed this, even though it wasn't really the agenda or the focus or any of the conversation that way aligned. So let me just tie this up with it, what I think the simplest idea is. Concentric circles, please imagine. The outside circle is, uh, the three circles, the outside circle is, out there. It's all the other stuff. Yeah. The next circle in is family, and the most inner circle is protecting the asset. A non-essentialist seems to me to simply start from the outside in. They start on out there. They're trying to drink the ocean. It can never be done. And it means that there's nothing left of them or hardly anything left for their family, and then even less left for them to protect the asset that is them, their, their spiritual, physical, emotional, mental capacities. And so they're left at the end of the day, every day almost exhausted, in the thick of thin things. And as a, what a friend of mine recently admitted to, instead of going to sleep at midnight, which is what he was wanting to do, he'd spend another two hours just going through Zillow, looking at all of the possible properties. And that was his attempt at protecting <laughs> the asset at the very end of the day. The essentialist, there's one change, one change, and it's this, you just reverse the order, it's just inside out. You protect the asset first, so then you show up differently to your family, to the, that inner group of people that are most important in your life. And then from there, because you have prioritized correctly, personally, and within the, those important relationships, uh, then you are in a better position to be able to evaluate and prioritize the projects out there that you are uniquely qualified and built to be able to help with. That's the shift. You go from outside in to inside out on that little concentric circle, that priority circle, and that's the shift to actually living an essentialist life. I mean, and it seems to me, from what I've seen from individuals and companies who do this well, they have clear hierarchical values. Not the wall art one, but the real one that also helped 
make that that this is clearly more important than this. And if they're in conflict, I know which one to pick. Uh, yes, I think that's right. Um, you know, PNG have literally carved in stone their their priority, their stakeholders in priority order. And I'm not even sure that they're saying that every other company ought to have that same order. What I think is is vitally important is that they have selected it for them. They are saying, this is the order in which we will make trade-offs as they will inevitably come. And so in a similar way, I think that that's what we're trying, what I'm advocating here is that first protect the asset. And let me go a little deeper to that protect the asset idea. I have a, a friend who became an entrepreneur of the year for, um, for Ernst & Young. He was, he was one of the, the earliest innovators within the microloan environment. He was the one that came up with, uh, with his other originators, the, uh, the for-profit microloan, so that they could scale it, so they could have this tremendous impact over the world. And he was doing that, really doing important work out there. But it so consumed him that it meant that there was less and less of him you know, for family, less and less of him, especially for protecting the asset. And so he burned himself out without really becoming aware of it. One day he comes home from, uh, from one of these uh, global trips that he'd been on and he's asleep and he, he just, there's like a gunshot goes off and he sits right up in bed with a gunshot having gone off. Uh, he looks around, what, what, nope, everyone else is still asleep. Uh, doesn't know what's happened. Well, it happens again a couple of days later, and then it happens one day through in the middle of the day. He's just walking along, and it happens. So he goes to the doctor, and he goes through a full analysis, and they basically say, look, you know, you need to go and take six weeks off and just completely recuperate. And he, as the quintessential overachiever, <laughs> says, well, watch this. I'm going to do it in two weeks. And, you know, good for him. He actually does take the two weeks, and he, he just realizes that his asset has been burned uh, more than he realizes. So he's sleeping, you know, 16 hours a day. And after two weeks, he crawls off the couch back to the doctor. He says, okay, fine. (laughs) You know, you win. I'm going to get this more seriously. Well, that continues to evolve as the burning of his asset becomes more clear to him. He eventually has to step aside from the company he's founded. He just didn't ever expect that to happen. He, he has to, takes off years to recover, really, and to get the prioritization back in order. And good, fortunately for him, he was able to do that. He had the, the means to be able to reshape a life in a very extensive reprioritization. But he, as he tried to express the story of everything he'd learned from that extreme experience, uh, that's where this is who came up with the term protect the asset. That's what he learned from it. And what I'm advocating for people is especially among all the personal assets you have, the highest priority asset is your ability to prioritize that, that still small voice that guides you, that conscience, that, you know, navigational intelligence. The first thing to go if you're exhausted. The first thing to go if you've only had four hours of sleep the night before. The first thing to go if you're consumed with the angry social media, harshly judgmental news gossip. If you're consumed with that, the first asset to go is your most important one. And so I'm I'm not just talking about the physical asset, uh, even the mental asset. I'm really trying to identify and emphasize this ability to discern what matters from what doesn't. That's the asset 
that makes all other assets possible. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So the thing, one of the biggest tactics I would assume in essentialism and protecting the asset is saying no. And people are really bad at it and afraid at it. I'm sure you must have to turn down, you know, 95% of the things you're asked. I I think people need to learn a better way to say no. There's just a lot of a lot of guilt or looking at it the wrong way. I always I, one thing I've learned how to communicate over the years after struggling with someone asked me to help a nonprofit cause and there are so many worthy causes and, and it just feels heartless to say no. But then I have to realize I already made a commitment that I haven't fulfilled to these two organizations who need my time and energy. So actually taking that on may, may actually make all three, three worse. So what do you have any good research or tips or practices on, on saying no? Well, the first thing that I want to say about that is, is that people seem to me to be trapped with a continuum in their minds, where on the one end of the continuum is the polite yes, and on the other end of the continuum is the rude no. Yeah. And if you believe that that communication exists on a continuum like that, then you're pretty stuck in the polite yes category. Because every time you step away from that, you're headed towards the rude no, and you don't want to do the rude no because that's going to be relationship damaging, that's going to be career limiting, and so on. Nobody wants to be that person. Yeah. So you end up in sort of in this name of, well, keeping the peace, even though you're not really keeping the peace. It's, you're just 
uh, it's almost like, um, I don't know, it's an artificial piece. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so here's, here's the way out of this is to discover that it's not a continuum, it's a pyramid, right? It's, there's a third alternative. And at the, at the hinge point at the top, it's to negotiate, to negotiate what is essential and where the trade-offs are and to realize that really almost everything can be a negotiation and ought to be, not just for the sake of being, of course, not for the sake of being difficult, but in service of the 90% and above important activities. Is it internal or external negotiation or do you mean, or is it both? Yes. I mean, I certainly mean both because here's the thing. If you haven't done it internally, you really are not going to do it effectively externally. So there, there needs to be a sort of secret negotiation where you're, <laughs> yeah, this is where I'm writing in my journal. This is why you, you've got to protect that asset internally so that you start to have a clear sense of what you want, of what you need. It's hard to, it's hard to be an effective leader or advocate if you don't have a point of view. So you do that work internally, but you don't just end there. The idea isn't that then as you enter an interdependent reality, interpersonal relationships, teams, in and across teams, that suddenly you just say, this is what I'm doing, and good luck to the rest of you. No, that's not the essentialist way. It's to, it's to figure out what is essential together with other people. It's to work out what the trade-offs are together with other people. It's to then eliminate those things together with other people, build a system to execute together with those people. And let me just give you an example of this in my own life, because I think it takes it from the conceptual sure. to real for real. I was trying to, it's, it's very, it's close to home. I was trying to persuade my, uh, one of my daughters uh, she was 14 at the time, uh, to read this particular book. And she loves to read. So it wasn't like a, hey, you never read, you should read it conversation. It was just, ah, I want to, I'm advocating. You should do this. I suppose I'm the manager in this situation. You, you know, go make this happen. And, uh, and she was resistant. She was pushing back. Uh, no big argument, just pushing back. I came back into my office and she slips a note under my door. And I, I just literally just grabbed that note. I'm going to read it to you. She said, she said, I already expressed my unwillingness to read this book, but I'm willing to make a counteroffer. I am not willing to read it all in one day today, but I'd be happy to explore the possibility of reading it in the future over the course of a few weeks. I believe it would be best to wait till the end of my literature assignment. If you would like me to read this book in place of a separate assignment and over the course of a few weeks, I'm sure that can be made possible. You're in trouble. <laughs> when your kids read their own books and use them against you. That's, 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 that's funny. She used a tactic that I was going to ask you about and that I think we use with clients or people ask more. I almost wonder if it's an internal bargaining thing. When you, anything that you're thinking about saying yes to, asking yourself, don't, not making the assumption you can add it to the plate, but asking what on the plate, is, is there something on the plate that should come off because this is more important? Otherwise, I think the, the propensity is just to add and not to swap. And that's she, it's exactly the tactic she used on you. Well, that's exactly it. And a non-essentialist basically believes there's no trade-offs. Yeah. You know, they're living like, is this thing a good thing? Well, that's a perfectly fine question to ask, but it's not a good question to ask when there's 
a thousand times more opportunity and need in the world uh, than you can fulfill, then it's yeah, not yeah. a useful question. It's not sufficiently useful because what you need to find out is among all of these things, what is the very best and highest use of me? And so it's important to start couching and framing the conversation as it pertains to something else already committed to or something possible that you could do instead. And a practical way for people to do that, one way that I find that's consistent with the priority circle process we talked about, is just once a month, I get a sheet of paper, and I literally have mine up on the wall right here for June for this month. And, and I, I use approximately seven is my magic number. Yeah. The first item on the list one at first, but one or two projects that will be completed in this month that's to do with protecting the asset. Hmm. Mine for this month, I, I'm not shy to say it, but it, it, <laughs> it, but it still will sound funny to some people. It's to, to take a nap every day. That's literally what's on here. Yeah, I like that. I can, I can get on board with that. You can get on board. <laughs> and it's because I'm so intensely working on my new book uh, and on the new podcast that's coming I'm on fire about those things. I wake up in the morning early to work on those things. And that's a good thing. I, I like that that's how I feel, that creative energy. Uh, but it, it's one of these things that has to be bridled. Otherwise, uh, you're going to burn out pretty quickly. And so I just make sure, okay, take the nap every day. And that can be short or long, depending on, uh, on, on what the need is. Number two for me is within family. Uh, so one of, one of my items for this month and we, there's lots of good habits already in place, routines in place, but this one is new to every day. Take a walk uh, with my wife, Anna, and just listen to her and listen to each other and have this space. And that has been such time well spent, I can hardly tell you. Uh, it's been so good, mentally healthy, emotionally healthy, relationally healthy, long-term planning, it's been healthy. I mean, there's been so many good things from that. And then the list goes on. So the idea is you have one or two projects in Protect the Asset, one or two in family, and then depending how many you've had, you have two or three or whatever remains uh, within projects within out there, your work projects and so on. You made me realize as you were talking about that before the trade-off, it, it almost brings in the LIFO, FIFO accounting principle, last in, you know, first out or first in, last out. And, and I've had these miscommunications even with people on my team, my assistants sometimes where sometimes there's an assumption that the first is most important or that the last is most important and neither of those may be true. It requires like a constant recalibration, right? Of, of where you are now. And, and, and yeah, maybe, maybe the oldest thing is not, not at all essential uh, anymore. And, and I, but I do think there's a lot of bias of people to assume, particularly as you get into growth startups and entrepreneurs that the newest is the most essential. Well, an email is literally built this way. Yeah. Uh, so it's prioritization based upon the latest thing, which to me is not a good uh, rule of thumb for importance. If you have, if you have the algorithm for <laughs> sorting my email by importance, I, that would you'd, you'd have a, a lot of takers. Well, <laughs> I mean, I think that's true. But here, here's what I would be satisfied with as a, as a good next step would be to have an algorithm that simply allowed me to prioritize them, yeah. that I could simply move the emails into my best guess of, of prioritization. Right. And, and the fact that that is not 
to my knowledge, not available and certainly not broadly available is a shocking thing to me. When, when I think of how many people do prioritize their day based on their inbox, the fact that literally prioritization <laughs> cannot be done <laughs> yeah. directly within the tool is not ideal. So until that problem is solved, I think having, you know, having something like the project list I'm describing once a month, having that allows for the day-to-day options and opportunities that come along to be weighed against something. I mean, I have many, many more projects than those seven that I'm interested in achieving. And great, have as long list as you like, gather those all together in a single place as new ideas come, put them on there. You can draw from those next month for which ones you think are the most important to get to. But having this approach, having this this priority project list has helped me to, to better evaluate those new things that come along. And whether I say, is this really a project that's more important than anything on the list right now? If it's not, we'll consider it next month. We don't have to be a slave to the latest thing that came in. I like to, someone introduced me to the sort of rule of three, and I try to align this to the quarterly goals so that it's a constant realignment. But just in the morning, I know I'm cognitively best in the morning. So three things I need to get done today in support of those things that, uh, and they're done by noon. So if nothing else got done for the day, that at least I got those three things done. And then you do that across you know, 60, 70 work days and, and it starts to add up towards the thing you said was most important. Yes, I think this is absolutely right. That if you get three things done, three things that matter to you or important to you done yeah. personally today, that's good. If you've done three things professionally today that mattered, you feel like you had a successful day personally and professionally. Yeah. Uh, and, and as you add that up, it, of course, it is cumulative. And suddenly the path of the essentialist is not just incrementally better than what a non-essentialist will produce with their the same amount of time and resources. It becomes exponentially improved. And I, I myself feel like essentialism is, is just, I can just start now yeah. after this years of <laughs> being on the journey to see the advantages and benefits. I, I can see it in the quality of relationship with my wife and with my children. Right, my children are now age 17, range from 17 to 11. So, you know, four children in that range. Well, I thought teenage years with children, with, with my children, I just assumed would be painful. I, I just thought it would be rough. And I don't, I should be hesitant to say this, but I recognize it is for a lot of people, but I'm just telling you, it's, I'm amazed at how it hasn't been like that. Yeah. I thought it would be, and actually, it's just a genuine joy. Uh, I mean, it's, there are days, of course, that it has its moments, but our children know each other. They like each other. They spend time together. Just, it isn't this constant argument. It's not this constant power struggle that I thought it might easily be. And I think that's, that's essentialism really at play. You know, the additive advantages of having essential habits in place uh, become exceedingly valuable in its consistent application. All right, we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with Greg. Hey, everyone. I'm excited to share that my new book, Friday Forward, Inspiration and Motivation to End Your Week Stronger Than It Started, releases on September 1st. My Friday Forward newsletter has inspired over 200,000 readers, and this book is a curated collection and update of the 52 most impactful stories from the series. Each story is intentionally written to challenge you to improve at work and in life, 
and to lead others to do the same. If you enjoy the conversations on the show, you'll get a lot out of this book. Learn how to make lasting changes in your life, motivate others, and impact people you haven't even met. Get Friday Forward in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook on September 1st. And for more information, go to www.fridayforwardbook.com. That's www.fridayforwardbook.com. And we're back with Greg McEwen. All right, so as you did your research for essentialism, what, what were some surprising things that you learned in the process that may have run counter to what you were looking for? One of the things that really surprised me was just on a personal basis, uh, discovering that what mattered wasn't just a little more important than the next thing on the list. Uh, so specifically, let's, I know we've emphasized it a lot today, but I, I do believe having written essentialism that the most important organization in the world is family. And most of the time, people will do a little head nod of agreement to that. You know, that the people will, will accept it, at least intellectually or at some level emotionally. But being consumed and submersed in essentialist thinking revealed to me not just it's more important, but that it's vastly more important. That, that when, for example, I go back and reread in my journals now going back, you know, some years, I, I am quite shocked to find that entries that I thought mattered at the time hardly matter at all to me. They just don't, in fact, they don't. I look at them and I think I, I'm not even interested to read more of them. But every so often there'll be an entry about an interaction I had with one of my children playing and going, and, and I, I've written in some detail about it so that I can recall it. I would have been lost from memory, but suddenly it all comes back to me. And I think that is truly valuable to me, to have that memory, to, to have had that experience, to be able to recall it now. So to me, this is one of the surprising things, is, is that it's not a little more important. It's not 10% more important. It is... It is um, Orders of magnitude, yeah. Yes, I think that is not an exaggeration. And I think that the course of history is, is really people remembering and forgetting that simple idea. Oh, that's really interesting. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to go as far to say you're a fan of COVID-19 because that wouldn't be fair. But I, I have to assume that someone who studies essentialism 
this is the world's biggest, and it will never, who knows, it'll never happen again, experiment on essentialism on, on a global basis that's ever been done where everything everyone's used to be doing has been t- taken away from them. Uh, I mean, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? You know, I know there's a lot of people dying to go back to the new normal. There's some other people saying, I, I, I don't need that. I don't need this. I don't want to travel as much. I, but I, I have to assume this has been, obviously it's horrific, but from the researcher in you, this has been fascinating to, to witness. Well, yes. Has it been horrific or is it an opportunity? The answer is yes. By my evaluation, it is both. Uh, there was a YouGov poll Uh, in the UK that found that just 9% of people wanted to go back to how things were before. That's a a shocking discovery in one sense. If, If you believe that things were great before, that's shocking. But what I think people have learned in this global timeout, where we have been told metaphorically, you know, and not unkindly to go to your room and don't come out until... Literally. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Don't come out until you thought about it. And I think even in this involuntary essentialism, which is not as good as voluntary essentialism, but it's a placeholder for it. In this moment, many people have discovered, hmm, what matters most to me is right here uh, in lockdown. Look at these relationships sometimes that you find my goodness, they're strained in ways I didn't realize uh, yeah. or I didn't want to admit. I've been out there in the black hole that will never be consumed. You know, you can't ever solve everything out there. And so you, people have spent sometimes whole lives, careers out there, and they suddenly discover, well, what really mattered most was right here where I've been, you know, where, where I'm in, in lockdown. And, and I do think there's an enormous opportunity for people to reevaluate, reprioritize, uh, so that they can start to design a life around what they now understand to matter, and I think that uh, I think that we, you know we will see whether we learn the lessons we can and and so on. But I think that uh, there's no going back to what was. I do think that's a decent assumption that people have now had an experience that they had never had before. Uh, And so from it, you know, imagine trying to talk to people who've never gone through it. Imagine in in 15 years, 20 years from now, assuming it doesn't happen again, which of course it could, but trying to say, you will be different because you've gone through it. You'll have learned things that you can't really pass on because other people didn't have the experience. But to identify now what matters clearly because of these experiences is an opportunity to be a new design center for creating a life deliberately and not letting it be designed by default. Yeah. And it applies personally and professionally. I know the big one personally is I think a redefinition of, it sounds like, you know, you're living with the asset more and a redefinition of the weekend. I think people have rediscovered a weekend without filled with extracurriculars and they like it. <laughs> and it's nice to not have a divide and conquer, you know, uh, wartime agenda for the weekend. I can't tell how many people I know look forward to Monday. And then on the business side, again, there are a lot of people who companies who said it is essential that we have an office. Well, 
business is getting done. You know, it's essential that we go to these conferences to our sales and marketing. It's essential that I do all these speaking and travel the world. Well, to the extent that the stuff is still happening and they're not doing that, it's a really interesting re-examination of some of their core beliefs. Yes. And I think that also it's just a good chance to reflect. I mean, yeah. just having the, the space. I mean, my, for my part, I realized quite early on that I wanted to use the opportunity to create and not to get consumed with, uh, with watching the media and reading the media and being consumed with that. Yeah. Uh, I, I, my undergraduate was in journalism, my graduate work in business, but I say that because I care about journalism. I care about reading it, but I, it didn't take long to realize that so much of what is being written couldn't be informed in a deep way because we simply don't have the answers. And at yeah. this time of this conversation, we still don't have the answers to most of the important questions for how, you know, how to resolve the situation we're in. So the news media cannot give us more than has been discovered. So as a result, you have all of this print media and cable media to fill, these hours to fill with something. And so it's going to become more and more opinionated. And I think in the range of that, just like any conversation you have where all you have is opinion is that people can become emotional and right. it becomes quite toxic quite quickly. So I wanted to turn that way down and use this time not as a, a chance to get more and more anxious about things I couldn't control, but instead to focus on what matters. You know, what can I do to protect the asset, create a positive culture in my family about what things we grateful for and what things we can do something about. And, and out of that has grown this positivity that surprises me, the feeling of, man, there's so many good things to create right now. And, and that's one of the reasons the podcast can happen. You know, it's been on the, on the books since the beginning of the year, but it's time to do it. The next book is coming along. Actually, now it's on, on schedule. I don't know what my plan was without all of this, <laughs> but but now, now that will looks likely to be finished by August as it's supposed to be. And it's actually been this positive creative time. Uh, now, I know that that's you know, good for me and lucky for me and privileged for me, I'm sure. But nevertheless, I think for many people, they, they can apply this principle. If you focus on what you lack, you're going to lose what you have. But if you focus on what you have, then you start to gain what you lack. Uh, I found that to be true in this time. Yeah, and and if we can avoid going back to, I think one of the problems is we have this cultural obsession with busy. Hey, how you doing? Ah, oh, busy. Like that's not a response. <laughs> you know, what, what, why why are we glorified busy so much? I was talking to somebody not so long ago, and they said, uh, I said, how are you? And uh, I'm so busy, Greg. I'm so busy. I've slept on average four hours a night for the last two weeks. <laughs> Don't they know not to say this to you? Well, she didn't because uh, apparently she didn't know anything about essentialism or okay. that I was into this. And so, and so she just, and so the conversation didn't go the way, you know, perhaps she was expecting it to go. And, and even if we're not the ones saying precisely that, it is often true that we celebrate the all-nighter. We celebrate the person who, you know, came in early, left late. Yeah. And this, the sort of the, the time warriors and I, she was, I do think, I mean, she was smiling when she said this to me. Why was she smiling? 
I think she was probably boasting a bit. You know, maybe she was saying, you know, I hate to break it to you, Greg, but I'm just a little more important than you are. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm under so much demand, you see. I can only sleep four hours a night. And, and we do celebrate this in ways we wouldn't celebrate. For example, we wouldn't say, well, you know, so-and-so is such a great employee, the way they make decisions, drunk all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we love the way they decide and evaluate things inebriated as they are. Uh, we, we, we wouldn't say that. And yet when you sleep four hours a night, it is the same physiologically and psychologically as if you're drunk. So there's what I think this reveals is the con of non-essentialism. Yeah. Because we've been taught that high performance comes from you know, not sleeping, putting in super long hours. And so we've been taught that. But when you actually go back and study it, so Eric Anderson's study on this uh, is made popular by Malcolm Gladwell in the book Outliers, where he talked about the 10,000-hour rule. But, but if you go back to the original research, it's not just that the top performers spend more hours doing X, you know, being more focused. Yes, that's true. But the second highest correlated item that distinguishes the top performers from average performers is the number of hours of sleep they get. And I do feel like we've made a shift. I feel like CEOs 10 years ago, I'm seeing a lot more talking about their sleep and, and 10 years, 20 years ago, it was, it, you heard the other, like it was bragging about getting away with three. I, I think we're making progress there. I'm not sure we're there yet. I, I think there is a cultural change. And what I want to say about it is it is absolutely inevitable. Yeah. Because <laughs> it doesn't work. Yeah. Because it doesn't work. Actually, there's the most amazing, uh, there's the most amazing quote from Desmond Tutu. I'm going to find it for you if you care to hear it. Yeah. This is, um, of course, Archbishop Desmond Tutu is uh, fighting along the side, along the lines with Steve Biku and, of course, Nelson Mandela uh, to end apartheid. But, but he says this, which I think is so powerful. He says, during the darkest days of apartheid, I mean, this is so relevant right now, is it not? Uh, but he says, during the darkest days of apartheid, I used to say to P.W. Botha, the president of South Africa at the time, that we had already won. And I invited him to join the winning side. All the objective facts were against us. The pass laws, the imprisonments, the tear gassing, the massacres, the murder of political activists. But my confidence was not in the present circumstances, but in the laws of God's universe. That is what had upheld the morale of our people to know that in the end, good will prevail. It was these higher laws that convinced me that our peaceful struggle would topple the immoral laws of apartheid. Mm. To me, there is in that insight something universally optimistic or, or something causative of hope, driving us to a different conclusion. Because instead of looking at whatever the current norms are of any particular issue, or in this case, doing too much, spreading yourself too thin, stretching yourself too thin, deprioritizing what's important. You know, whatever the, the surface problems are, ultimately, there are principles that cannot be violated. Or rather, you can try to violate them, but you'll just keep getting bad results. You don't change the underlying principle. The law is actually governing. And essentialism, I believe, is something akin to that. It's describing natural law 
that yeah. you can you can attack sure you can you can fight against it you can deny it you can whatever but you'll then bear the consequences of that and ultimately the pain of those consequences will get people to realign themselves to correct principles realign themselves to these natural laws that operate everywhere and and, and will eventually uh, win and there was a quote that you had or maybe you said you can tell me either one that I love which was your obligation, and this really brings it into a cherry, I think, uh, you know, I, your obligation is to the highest point of contribution you can make. Yes, that's exactly the idea. You've got to think about everything that you could do and try to just to even imagine as a thought experiment, ranking that, force ranking those activities from the most important, that's 100, to the least important, that's zero, and recognize that the activities in the 90% or above where all of this highest contribution, the highest value are, those activities are sufficient for the rest of your life. <laughs> They're sufficient for the time you have remaining. Yeah. So anytime you opt for something lower on the list, you're taking time away from something more important. And, and that's exactly the way to have this conversation with yourself or with other people. It's not to simply say no. I didn't write a book called Noism. <laughs> so it's not about saying no to everyone and everything. No, yeah. it's about the essentials. So you've got to get the conversation to be about that. What's the most important thing we can do? What's the best contribution I can make to serve and help you? What's the best thing we can do in our family, in our marriage, with our teenagers? What's the best project I can do this month? These are the questions so that when it comes time to evaluate something else that comes along, you're constantly looking at it against what you understand is your highest contribution right now. You may find in that exploration to, well, this thing is way more important and you can change your project at any point. Right. But it's far better than just taking each item that comes along, is it good? Well, being on social media in many ways can produce a good if you just look at it in a vacuum and evaluate it only against itself. Could I learn something? Yes. Could there something possibly good come of it? Well, of course, yes. <laughs> so that's no good in evaluating. It's no right. good in selecting. What we need is to be able to look against our best and highest use and to try and constantly steer our focus back to that. So Greg, you mentioned you got an upcoming book, podcast, organization. Tell everyone where they can find out about all these things, uh, different places, like go to one place. Yeah, uh, just go to essentialism.com. Okay. Uh, that's the best thing. Of course um, you would have one place. I shouldn't have <laughs> I, I, Now I feel silly having asked that question. <laughs> no. well, the, the, and, and here's what I want to say, even about these different activities, the, these different things that we're launching, it's all part of a single focus, which is yeah. to build, and it's quite a new focus actually, um, is to build an essentialist community uh, that can help and support each other to become more essentialist, of course, uh, by protecting the asset, investing in family, and achieving these priority projects. That's what it's about. And whether it's the form is a new book, which doesn't come out for a while, or whether it's a new essentialism class that does come out quite soon, or the podcast that's coming out sooner than all of them. It's all the same focus in my view. It's just the different pieces that need to be built so that a community can exist 
right now, and it's a maybe it's an error on my part from the last few years, but right now people read the book and maybe they do the smart thing, they get their team involved and other people involved, but effectively they can often be on their own. Yeah. And so they're quite isolated in being an essentialist in what feels like a non-essentialist world. And, and I just think it's important to help create a place, a platform, uh, a community where people can inspire each other, communicate with each other uh, as we actually build you know, these, these new lives, these new lifestyles that are, uh, are totally doable uh, once you get the support of a community. Well, Greg, thanks for sharing your story with us. I've been a long time admirer of your work and I loved having the chance to dig in it, into it with you uh, in, in first person. Thank you, Bob. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Greg and in all of his work and links that he talked about on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode with Greg, I'd appreciate it if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show and the content. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, all you have to do is select the library icon, click on Elevate, scroll down to the bottom, and you can leave a rating or review. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.